With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the many unwritten rules of horror movies is that you should never have sex. Because if you do, you're just asking to be killed. You've probably heard the old urban legend about the hook, in which a young couple visits the local lover's lane to get romantic when a news flash comes over the car's radio warning people to be on the lookout for an escaped mental patient with a sharpened hook for a hand. The young man tries to convince his girlfriend that there's nothing to worry about and wants to stay. But the girl grows agitated and insists that they leave. The young man drives her home. Then, when they park in front of the girl's house, he gets out and goes to open her door, only to find a bloody, severed hook latched onto the car door's handle. Now, to me, this story never made a whole lot of sense. For one thing, what mental institution is going to allow one of its patients to have a sharpened hook for a hand? Sociologists who study urban legends will tell you this particular story is a cautionary tale dreamed up as a warning against premarital sex. But history has shown that stories like this aren't quite as far-fetched as they seem. If I were to tell you there's a true story from history in which a deranged killer stalked and murdered people at local lovers' lanes, then sent taunting, coded messages to the police, you'd probably think I was talking about the Zodiac Killer, right? But you'd be wrong. There's another case that bears many similarities to the Zodiac that preceded it by several decades. One that you've probably never heard about. And like the Zodiac, the killer has never been caught. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you from the backseat of my 59 Studebaker with the windows all steamed up. And this is The Conspirators. Joseph Mozinski was a 39-year-old grocer from Queens, New York. On the evening of Wednesday, June 11, 1930, he told his wife he was going out to run a few errands. Instead, he went to pick up his 19-year-old mistress, Catherine May. They rode in his four-door sedan to a secluded wooded area near Whitestone in the College Park area of Queens. Mozinski and May had been having an affair for two years, and they knew all the local spots where they could have an amorous moment alone. They parked the car, moved to the back seat, and got busy. But after only a few minutes, a small, slender man appeared out of the darkness and poked his head in through the open driver's window. He spoke with a thick German accent, and he had a gun in his hand. He ordered Mozinski to get back into the driver's seat. Then he let himself into the back seat next to Catherine. He told Mozinski to start the car. When the engine sputtered to life... The intruder pointed the gun just behind Mozinski's right ear and pulled the trigger. The force of the gunshot spun Mozinski around in his seat. Catherine screamed as the gunman shot Mozinski again. This time the bullet smashed through two of his teeth and out his right cheek. Even though he took two bullets to the head, Mozinski was still alive. The gunman then turned his attention to Catherine. The pretty 19-year-old girl cowered away from him. He raped her while her lover lay dying in the front seat. 
When he was finished, the gunman got out of the car and opened the driver's door. Mozinski's body, still gasping for breath, fell partway out of the vehicle. The gunman leaned over him, reached into his inside coat pocket, and pulled out some papers. He studied the papers for a moment in the dim light. Then, seeming satisfied with their contents, he took out a match and lit them on fire. While the man was preoccupied with torching the papers, Catherine tried to sneak out of the car. I wouldn't do that, the man told her. I'll have to murder you if you don't behave. He ordered the terrified girl to tell him her home address. He took a flashlight from inside his coat and he calmly led her away from the car and told her to come with him. They walked to the nearby village of Bayside, where the two of them boarded a bus bound for Flushing, Queens. Once they were both seated on the bus, the man passed Catherine a folded sheet of paper. Don't read this until tomorrow, he told her. After the bus reached the Flushing Terminal, the man escorted Catherine to a trolley that would pass through her neighborhood in College Point. The rapist bid Catherine goodnight as he hopped off the trolley, disappearing into the night. Catherine was in shock. She sat silently in her seat as the trolley traveled several more blocks, before finally working up the courage to examine the folded piece of paper. The message was stamped in red ink. It read, 3X, 3-X-097. The traumatized girl didn't know what to do next, so she went home and crawled into bed too terrified to report what had happened to her to the police. Police officers found Joseph Mazinski's body in the early dawn hours. They determined he'd likely died only a short time before they found him. The detectives on the scene were Inspector John Gallagher and Lieutenant James Smith. They found a woman's coat in the front seat stained with blood. The area they were in had a reputation as a lover's lane, so they assumed Mazinski had company that night. They found a photograph of Catherine in the dead man's wallet, and they were soon able to identify her and track her down at her home in College Point. They brought Catherine into the precinct for questioning. She told the skeptical detectives everything that had occurred the night before. But the detectives didn't believe her bizarre story at first. They couldn't understand why she hadn't reported the attack to the police right away. Catherine explained that she didn't want her parents to find out she'd been involved with a married man. They held her for three days of non-stop interrogation. But for a while, at least, they were unable to get Catherine to deviate from her story. After three days of having no sleep and just wanting to go home, Catherine finally gave up the name of an admirer of hers named Joseph Moisette. By the following day, she had changed her story yet again, now blaming a made-up Italian gangster named Alberto Lombardo. Her first story had been the truth, but by now she was willing to tell the detectives whatever they wanted to hear just so she could go home. Police picked up Moisette in Chicago aboard a train bound for California and soon determined he couldn't have had anything to do with the murder. They also realized Lombardo wasn't a real person either. By now, Catherine was at her breaking point and she tried to confess to killing Mozinski herself, but the detectives didn't believe that story either. While all this was going on, there were other events happening that would ultimately exonerate Catherine and only deepen the mystery. The New York Evening Journal was one of the original muckraking newspapers owned by the legendary William Randolph Hearst. By 1930, the journal boasted the largest newspaper circulation in the United States. So it stood to reason that if an insane killer wanted to get some publicity for his crimes, the journal was the place to go. 
On Friday, June 13th, the Journal City Editor, Amster Spiro, was at his desk going through the day's mail. Part of his job was to sift through the usual legitimate letters to the editor and those written by obvious crackpots. Among the letters he received that day was a bizarre message written on pink stationery that read, Kindly print this in your paper for Mazinski's friends. The letter contained a series of cryptic letters and numbers, followed by the word Queens and another short note. By doing this, you may save their lives, and the women may know where their missing papers are and who has them since they were given to Mozinski. We do not want any more shooting unless we have to. Signed, 3X, the man behind the gun. Spiro balled up the paper and was about to chuck it into the trash can when his mind made a connection. He remembered that police had just found a dead man named Mozinski out in College Point. Spiro uncrumpled the note and read it again, then examined the envelope. He was shocked to realize the postmark on the envelope showed the letter was mailed a few hours before the body was discovered. Soon the letter and envelope were in police custody. They couldn't find any fingerprints on the letter, and the detectives didn't know what to make of it. Early news reports of the Mozinski murder were relegated to the inside pages of most city newspapers. At first, no mention was made about the cryptic letter, although the journal did report that Mozinski had been having an affair, and that he had another girl on the side besides Catherine. This particular piece of information they learned from one of Mozinski's relatives. The following day, Saturday, the journal received another letter from 3X. This time the letter was written on stationery that came from the Civil Service Bureau office in College Point, the same office where Catherine May worked. The note read, Gentlemen, for your information, the young lady, Miss C. May, involved in the case is innocent and a victim of unfortunate circumstances. We always get them through their women friends. Mozinski was nothing but a dirty rascal, a dirty rat. Not two women as stated in the papers, but six and two young girls, one fourteen and one fifteen, were with him in that same place. I am the agent of the secret international order, and when I met Mozinski that night, it was to get from him certain documents but unfortunately, they weren't in his possession. If his relative knew so much of his luck with women, maybe he would tell us what became of the following items. Again, this was followed by another string of letters and numbers, this time with the city of Philadelphia mentioned. The letter followed, These papers must be returned to us at once, or 14 more of Mozinski's friends will join him. Mozinski's relatives and friends have up to Monday, 12 p.m., to bring these documents to us, or have someone get in touch with us and tell us where to find them. If no answer is received by that time, we will start Merry Hell for all of them. Signed, AV-3X, the man behind the gun. The detectives on the case didn't believe for a second that the man who wrote these insane ramblings was part of some secret international organization, but they were still greatly worried about his threat to harm 14 more people. Police were sent to protect Mazinski's relatives as a precaution. Inspector Gallagher and his detectives questioned everyone close to Mazinski, but none of them claimed to know anything about his involvement in some mysterious international organization or of any coded documents. Not only did the killer send a cryptic letter to the journal, but Inspector Gallagher received a letter of his own that contained a shorter version of the same message sent to the paper. Gallagher didn't want the journal to play the 3X killer's game and requested that they not publish anything about the mysterious letters. By Monday, the only article they published on the killing was about Catherine's three-day interrogation and her false confession. On Tuesday morning, a motorist on his way to work noticed a new car parked among a group of old wrecks in an auto salvage yard in Floral Park in Queens. The driver pulled over to investigate, 
and he discovered a dead man slumped behind the wheel of the car. Police arrived on the scene and inspected the man's billfold. His name was Noel Sowley, and he was a 26-year-old radio mechanic from Brooklyn. Like Bozinski, he'd been shot twice in the head at close range. This time the killer had left an additional calling card, a newspaper clipping about the earlier murder stamped with the name Mozinski in red ink. Scribbled in pencil in the margins were the words, Here's How. While Inspector Gallagher and his detectives were busy processing the crime scene, Amster Spiro at the New York Journal was reading another letter from 3X. Dear Sir, it read, You have not published the code message sent to you. Too bad. For your information, there is more work for the police. Tonight at 10 p.m., Sowley was bumped off near Floral Park and not far from a police signal station. You will find him near an auto junk pile. We have selected this night to do it as Mozinski was buried today. This is our second warning to them. Thirteen more men and one woman will go the same way if they do not return two of the missing papers. NY document as found on Sowley last night and also some of our money. As in the case of Mozinski's girlfriend, the girl was put on a bus and sent home. We always get them through their women friends. 3X. When Inspector Gallagher got back to his office, he too found a letter waiting for him from the killer. It was similar in many ways to the letter sent to the New York Journal. But this one also contained physical evidence of the crime itself. A 32 caliber shell, the same type used to kill both men. Police found the girl mentioned in both notes. She was 18-year-old Elizabeth Ring, a recent divorcee, who had just rekindled an old romance with her previous boyfriend, Noel Sowley. Like the Mozinski killing, the girl told police the stranger had appeared at the window of Sowley's car and pointed a gun at them. The man demanded to see Sowley's driver's license. Sowley complied and asked the man if there was a problem. The stranger then faced the rear of the car and flicked his flashlight on and off several times as if he were communicating in Morse code. Sowley asked the stranger what he was doing and the man responded in a heavy German accent that he was signaling his friends on a nearby hill that he didn't need assistance. Then the man handed several cards to Sally and asked him if he knew Joseph Mazinski. Sally said he had no idea who Joseph Mazinski was, and the man shot him in the mouth. Sally managed to garble out that he had the wrong guy. The gunman stepped away to look at the license plate, then came back and said, Here's Sally, all right, and he shot him again in the back of the head. He reached into Sally's jacket and found a sheet of paper, then excitedly exclaimed, I have it! The stranger then turned his attention to Elizabeth Ring in the car, and it's likely he would have raped her too, but she showed him the religious medal she wore around her neck and pleaded mercy. He ordered her out of the car and walked her more than a mile to a bus stop before putting her aboard a bus bound for Jamaica, Queens. Like before, the man handed her a folded sheet of paper before she got on board and told her not to look at it until later. Rubber stamped in red ink was the name Sowley, and under that, the name 3X was written in pencil. Elizabeth Ring was too scared to call the police as well. It wasn't until they came looking for her that she told her story. Now that a second death had occurred, the story became front-page news on every New York paper. Newswire reports about the bizarre crime spread the story across the country. Tabloid headlines screamed a terrifying warning at readers that they could be next. The journal published all the letters and gave a full account of what had happened. By the next morning, Amster Spiro had received another letter, and the city was in a mass panic. Sir, the new letter read, I advise you to publish this code message, AV3X. Tonight one more will go. You may let them know 3X is the man behind the gun. 
He asks for no quarter, but will give none. On June 18th, I will be at College Point to get WRV8. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It was June 18th that day. Police Commissioner Edward Mulrooney put the entire New York Police Department on high alert and would immediately launch one of the largest manhunts in the city's history. He sent a small army of officers to stake out College Point that night. 425 detectives and 2,000 uniformed officers patrolled the College Point area. Two emergency squads and several patrol cars equipped with machine guns were sent out. More than 100 male officers were dressed up as women and sent out with plainclothes male companions in the hope they could trap the killer. The New York Evening Journal only made the city's mass panic even worse by publishing the headline on their afternoon edition, Two Dead, 14 More to Die, and One of Them a Woman, Killers Say. There was a run on people applying for gun permits that day. Civilians avoided local lovers' lanes completely, except for the masquerading cops. There was no way to keep any of this a secret. The Brooklyn Daily Star put out a headline announcing the 2,000 police who were combing the area looking for the killer. Most of the local papers published competing descriptions of the killer based on the testimony of Catherine and Elizabeth. Catherine said the killer was around 40 years old, about 5 feet 6 inches, and 125 pounds with a wrinkled face. Elizabeth said 3X was a decade younger, with a pale complexion, a lanky build, and thin cheeks with small eyes and bad teeth. They both agreed on the man's heavy German accent. Elizabeth said when she'd seen the man, he'd had a round bronze button on his left lapel that said Rifle Association. That evening, Elizabeth and Catherine were taken to the Creedmoor State Hospital for the Insane, which primarily housed war veterans with mental problems. All 1,931 residents were brought into the dining room and marched past the two women in the hope they would recognize one of them. But none of them resembled the man they'd met. The women were then sent home and put under police protection. The night wore on and the police kept patrolling College Point hoping to catch the madman. Although the newspaper headlines had driven plenty of people to lock themselves up safely in their homes that night, several thousand braver souls ventured out hoping to see some action. The streets were clogged with people parked and circling around the tiny neighborhood waiting for something to happen. People were everywhere, hoping to see a car chase or a shootout. Six o'clock became seven, then eight, and finally nine o'clock when the killer promised to strike. Police officers with shoot-to-kill orders held their collective breath. Everyone expected to hear the sound of gunshots and screams echoing through the night. But nothing happened. The clock ticked on, and for the rest of the night, 3X did not strike as far as anyone knew. Several arrests were made that evening, but everyone was later released. There was a lone man caught sitting behind the wheel of his car whose first words to the officers that confronted him were, I didn't kill anyone. He was taken in for questioning. Several suspects were placed in a lineup in front of Catherine and Elizabeth, but they couldn't identify anyone as 3X. A group of teenage boys thought it would be a funny gag to set off some firecrackers in College Point, but the police caught them before they could strike the match. That night, the journal received another letter that explained why the killer hadn't fulfilled his deadly promise. 
The note read, WRV8 of CP has returned the Philadelphia XV346 to me tonight after reading your paper. Also $37,000 of blackmail money. Thanks to God, if I may use his name. The letter went on to explain that the return of these documents, along with the money, was enough for 3X to spare the life of the person in question, along with the woman and five other men. That still left seven other operatives on his hit list, but he listed another series of coded documents that they still had time to return, along with an additional $39,000. He gave another code which he claimed gave instructions on what these individuals needed to do in order to remain alive. But despite the rambling and bizarre threats, 3X appeared to contradict himself in the same letter when he claimed he had begged his superiors to show mercy on the other intended victims. Later on, a leading psychologist would study the case and diagnose 3X as a classic paraphenic, what is known today as a paranoid schizophrenic. The psychologist explained that 3X suffered from delusions of being persecuted, and that his delusional mind had misinterpreted incidents all around him and worked them into a paranoid fantasy of his own creation. The psychologist explained this would make 3X extremely dangerous to be around, since he was convinced everyone was plotting against him. Just three hours after the journal received the new letter from 3X, detectives received another letter in which the killer bragged that he had been watching them the whole time. The letter had been addressed to a particular patrolman who had spent the night at one of the police stations. I saw you cleaning your gun last night, the letter said. I hope you didn't expect to shoot me. You will never find me. On Thursday, June 19th, 3X mailed a letter from Philadelphia to Joseph Mazinski's brother John. The letter arrived special delivery and warned Mozinski's brother that he was next on the list, and that he was to leave the valuable documents in a Philadelphia train station, or death would follow. But John Mozinski wasn't part of any secret spy organization. He was a plumber with a wife and four kids. Philadelphia police detectives attempted to trace where the special delivery letter came from. They ended up arresting a 34-year-old man named John Clark, an escaped mental patient from Kings Point Mental Hospital in Long Island, who had been caught sending a series of bizarre letters to a rooming house in Philadelphia. The man would have made a promising suspect had Clark's own doctor not come forward to clear him. The psychiatrist explained that although Clark was known to send threatening letters, he had the mentality of an eight-year-old, and there was no way he could have written letters as sophisticated as those by 3X. That same day on June 19th, a 50-year-old insurance salesman named Morris Horowitz from Brooklyn was about to pull his car into his garage, when a stranger appeared out of nowhere and pointed a gun at him. He ordered Horowitz to drive, but even though he was behind the wheel of the car, Horowitz tried to talk his way out of it, claiming he didn't know how to drive. The gunman reached into the car and pistol-whipped Horowitz, then shot him once in the shoulder. He fired another shot, but missed this time. Mrs. Horowitz, who had been sitting on the front porch, stood, screamed, and promptly fainted. The gunman fled after that, disappearing up a nearby alley. Police arrived quickly and began scouring the area looking for the suspect. Horowitz gave police a description from his hospital bed. He claimed the man was short and slender, with blonde hair and crazy eyes. Although the man was never caught, police did recover a pair of shell casings from the scene. But these casings were from a 45, whereas Mozinski and Sowley had been shot with a 32 caliber pistol. Over time, other leads began to come in. A man in the Bronx got a threatening letter claiming to be from 3X that turned out to be from his wife in order to scare him from stepping out with his mistress. A series of four letters were sent to newspapers purportedly from 3X claiming responsibility for another murder in New England, but those letters proved to be fakes as well. 
On June 21st, 3X sent yet another letter to the New York Evening Journal. This one was apparently the real deal. In it, he gave a strange and rambling explanation for his crimes and of the code he'd been using in his communications. Dear Sir, The last document, NJ4-3-44, returned to us the 19 at 9 p.m. My mission is ended. There is no further cause for worry. I do not know Dr. Williams and the others. The first sign means A, the Supreme Tribunal of the Order. The second V, its special agent. The two combined form the Red Diamond of Russia, a secret organization all over the world. Anyone breaking its rules is marked for death. The letter went on to explain that the people they had marked for death had been part of a ring of blackmailers and that they had come into possession of a number of incriminating documents about the organization. 3X went on for several more paragraphs to brag that he was a German army officer and that he was leaving that night for Russia, never to return. In the letter, 3X appeared to delight in how he had outwitted the police. And it's clear he thought of himself as some gallant hero in a wide-ranging espionage plot. But there was nothing heroic about cold-blooded murder, nor in the rape of two women. Although 3X claimed in this letter that his killing spree was over and that he was leaving the country, police kept up the massive manhunt for him for several months. 3X had also claimed that this would be his last letter, and that any letters the police or newspapers received after that point would be fakes. Still, letters purporting to be from the killer kept arriving, and they all had to be treated seriously. A few days after 3X sent his farewell letter, police caught a potential break in the case when Elizabeth Ring picked a man's photo out of a book of mugshots she claimed resembled 3X. He was a 38-year-old sexton from Mount Vernon, just north of the Bronx, named Nicholas LaRoche. LaRoche had once been arrested for forging a prescription for narcotics. The handwriting on that forged prescription closely matched the 3X letters. LaRoche was brought in and put in a lineup before Elizabeth and Catherine, and after some examination, they decided that he wasn't the man they'd encountered after all. By July 8th, Commissioner Mulrooney brought an end to the manhunt. It had been costing the city in excess of $10,000 a day with no results. In October 1930, and then again in October 1931, two more letters appeared that warned of more murders to come, but no corresponding crimes ever appeared to follow. On October 3rd, 1937, New York went on high alert again when two young lovers were found shot and stabbed in a parked car in Hollis, Queens. The victims were 20-year-old Louis Weiss and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Frances Hajak. They had both been shot in the right temple. The killer then used the girl's lipstick to draw a red circle on each of the victim's foreheads. But after a thorough investigation, police could find no connection between these lipstick murders, as they'd come to be known, and the man known as 3X. Nobody really believed that the killer known as 3X was a secret agent, or that his victims were part of some shadowy blackmail operation. But it should be pointed out that a month before his death, Joseph Mazinski mysteriously deposited $8,000 in his bank account. No one knows where he got that much money. Nor can anyone explain the thick wad of cash police found stuffed inside a blood-stained magazine near Noel Solly's car. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for helping make this podcast a success. If you want to continue to support us, spread the word and tell your friends and family about us. And subscribe to and rate the show on iTunes. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening. <laughs>